drop. Hi everyone, you are listening to Storyfort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest. This is a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. I'm Allison Meyer from the Storyfort team. Um, and I'll start with a festival update, which was announced last week. As many of you are probably aware, after initially postponing the next Treefort Music Fest from March to this September, the Treefort team has decided to postpone even further, given everything that's happening with COVID-19 and the uncertainty about uh, these coming months. So, the ninth Treefort will now be taking place in September 2021, and the 10th festival will land in March 2022. And you can learn more about all of that on the Treefort website, treefortmusicfest.com. And in the meantime, we will continue bringing stories and music to this podcast. This week, we have a really great episode with two writers who had been on our Storyfort lineup for this year and who we certainly hope to meet in person in the near future. Uh, Julia Claiborne Johnson and Lydia Fitzpatrick are both novelists and um, up until recently were neighbors, which we talk about in this interview. Julia is the author of the really wonderful, charming novel, Be Frank With Me, which was a Los Angeles Times bestseller and was one of six finalists chosen by the American Booksellers Association for Best Debut of 2016. Her new novel, Better Luck Next Time, comes out early next year. Lydia's debut novel, Lights All Night Long, came out last year and received a lot of attention and praise. It's a really beautiful book. Her work has appeared in the Best American Mystery Stories, One Story, Glimmer Train, and other places. Her short story, Safety, which she mentions briefly in this interview, is actually one of my very favorite short stories of recent years. It's just really stuck with me ever since I read it. Um, And you can find that one in the 2016 collection of O. Henry Prize stories. So I definitely recommend checking that out along with both of their novels. Seriously, go read both Be Frank With Me and Lights All Night Long. Okay, I think that's pretty much it for this intro. Let's just get into this interview, which Storyfort director Christian Wynn and I recorded with Julia and Lydia on Zoom a couple of weekends ago. We hope you enjoy. All right, I'm Christian Wynn. I'm here with Julia Claiborne Johnson and Lydia Fitzpatrick and our very own Allison Meyer, who's co-hosting with me today. So Allison, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about you other two writers? on the Zoom screen here. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Yeah. Where are you right now? You're in, Lydia? I am in North Carolina right now. Mm-hmm. You fled LA, I heard. I did in March. In March, I, uh, I left LA with the kiddos and we have not yet had the chance to be back. Yeah, and you were living right down the block from Julia. I am, yeah. Julia is my is my best neighborhood writer friend. So we tend to take very early morning walks together and and chat about craft and life and whatnot. Um, after I've dropped the kids off at school, so I'm gonna miss that. Mm-hmm. I'm I know yeah. Julia 
really made kind of a sad face when I said that you live here in North Carolina. So, Julia, how are you doing in LA? It's well, it's we're bereft without Lydia because she was like who I would walk in. You know how they have that that knitting thing called Stitch and Bitch? We had walk and talk that was for like, you know, <laughs> life is terrible. Why do we want to be writers? Oh, you know, and she would talk me off the ledge. I don't think I ever had to talk her off the ledge much. You did. But, uh, you might not have known it. You were doing it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, uh, it was, you know, and I missed that because she was like right here. And now like, and I had one other friend who lived sort of in the neighborhood and he moved to Palm Springs. And I'm like, what the heck? Now my parent, my parents, oh, my family. Oh, dear God. It's begun. <laughs> my, my family's like, uh-huh. Glazed uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. over eyes, the whole business. I was gonna say your husband's a writer, so you have him to kind of talk to, but I suppose you have other things to talk about when you're, you know, married for a number of years. But uh, well, why don't we hop into this couple of questions? Allison's gonna start us out with the, uh, I'm not sure what she's gonna ask right now, but go for it, Allison. Well, I just wanted to, for a bit more context, how long were you neighbors? I mean, did you know from the beginning that you had a writer down the street? Um, no, I didn't. I feel like I kind of heard about you, heard tell about <laughs> Julia Claiborne Johnson and her name has such gravitas that I was oh, like, yes. a little nervous to meet her. And I'm then very serious. Walk and, um, I, I realized, you know, how much fun she is. So, yeah, well, we, had a, we had a good few years. Mm, we had a few years. Her. But I knew the people who lived in her house before her. So I was able to fill her in on that. And then we, there's an, our neighborhood is rife with writers for some reason. And there's a writer named Julie Buxbaum who lived on Lydia Street. And she's like, you know, there's another writer here named Lydia Fitzpatrick. I was like, yeah, there's yeah, something in the water. We have kind of like a seven block area that just seems to be full of writers, full of writers people yeah. walking and not, you know, avoiding their desk. <laughs> exactly. Wearing bedroom shoes while they walk yeah. around the block. Yeah, you walk out, you go, okay, I've got pants on. Good. Yeah, I don't think you ever saw me without sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> Because they're my eyes. <laughs> there is a pair of sunglasses in my front lemon tree, and we're all like obsessed with them. We're like, whose glasses are they? Maybe they're Lydia's. Who knows? <laughs> hanging in the lemon tree? Yeah, we have lemon trees out front. So, and Lydia had a huge citrus tree in her backyard that was a yuzu, we found out. But she didn't know that. But I thought it was an orange tree because they look like oranges. And so I like picked one. I was like, oh, what is this? But it's a Japanese citrus. So this neighborhood was big. The gardeners were all Japanese, like in the 20s and 30s. And so I'm sure that tree's probably 70 years old. It's gigantic. It had hundreds of yuzu on it. Coco's down, my daughter's downstairs right now making yuzu marmalade with some of your yuzu. Which is delicious. Um, where, where are you moving, Lydia? I am moving to uh, a suburb of Charleston called the Old Village. Uh, it's an old fishing village just across the river from downtown Charleston. Uh, my family is from Louisiana and the Southeast in general, and my husband's family is too. And I think just, you know, kind of one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it clarified to us how how close we want to be to family um, and how important it is to us to be able to, you know, quarantine and then drive and see people um, and then quarantine again and drive and see different people and, you know, just um, just to be to be close. So. Uh, so, yeah, we actually 
almost managed to make the move remotely, but we vastly underestimated the size of the pod that we would need. It turns out we have like a lot more belongings than we thought. So we got a pod, got it packed, and then um, we got a call that our house is still half full of stuff. And so my husband had to fly across the country in the last, last minute, you know, suited up with his mask and goggles and everything and drive a U-Haul with the rest of the stuff across the country. So he has just returned. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll be moving into that house in August and our, our um, kind of hanging with the in-laws till then. Mm-hmm. Which is a theme and transitions in my life. We kind of it tend to hang with them. It was funny because my husband and I were walking around the block as writers do. And it was like after dark. We were out after dark. <laughs> this is very exciting. And this guy says to us, Julia, Chris, you know, he's got a mask on. It was Granger. It was her husband. Oh my gosh, you're making um, the, the truck. Because we walked up and I was like, oh, there's a U-Haul in her driveway. Well, and what's going really on. because I gave Julia all of my alcohol because you're not allowed to put it in the pod. So she'd been like guzzling all of my alcohol, not guzzling, like this. very responsibly consuming all of my alcohol. And Granger got there after like the worst day of flying across the country and was like, where is the gin? I know. <laughs> there was a big bottle of gin too. Believe me, it was very exciting. And I said to Granger, I've got all your food and all your alcohol. Please let me give you some. And he's like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It was better for him. He, he, he had to get going. He had to get on the road, you know? Yeah, you haul pulling a car and a big bottle of gin is not a good combination. No, no. Uh, feel free to quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, Julia actually had a, a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of the day you guys flew out. And how Was it a pretty quick decision? Or get it, Julia, you can kind of give us your, your version of the 4 a.m. cab or Uber, not Uber ride, but um, your previous ride, yes, to the airport. So Lydia called, because my kids hadn't come home from school yet. That that, that trauma came the next week. But um, she called me, she said, are your children home? I was like, no, they're still at school. And she's like, oh, I need somebody. I don't want to get in an Uber. I need somebody to drive me to the airport. And I said, well, I'll do it. And she's like, it's at four in the morning. I was like, that's all right, you know. Who's sleeping these days anyway? <laughs> I know. It's crazy though. It was like a torrential downpour. It just felt like one of those moments where you're like, this is it. I can feel what's happening. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm an intense hypochondriac. So early March, I was freaking out and yeah, got the kiddos. I don't think school had quite even been canceled yet. And just this is about to be. And she had all this stuff laid out to pack. I was like, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to buy diapers where you're going. <laughs> so she left those behind. Good, but her parting gift was like a little packet of hand sanitizer. She's like, here. <laughs> and it's beautiful, right? Turned out a good one. What was the date on your lockdown there? We took a little bit. I mean, I to give you a sense of my level of. Um, of, I guess at the time, paranoia, I was flying with a mask on in January. So, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty intensely paranoid about illness. I don't know, you know, what it is in my past that has made that part of my nature, but um, yeah, it just is. So I was really antsy about the kids in school and, you know, kind of dying for them to call it. And then eventually I just had to kind of jump the gun and call it myself. Yeah, you were the first person who fled and then like people fled, fled, fled. But, um, and I know it was probably, that was probably like the 6th of March or something. Cause the kids like on the 13th of Friday, the 13th 
how symbolic. <laughs> That's when we had to start scrambling our kids home. So what a mess that was. And how many kids do you have, Julian? What's that, honey? How many kids? Yeah. I have 42. Oh, wait, just two. <laughs> okay, it feels like 42, maybe. It feels like 42, but they're big. And I think yeah. about Lydia all the time because, well, my children were both supposed to graduate from college on the same day in vastly different states. Chicago, that's not a state I know, but, you know, <laughs> bear with me. And also Massachusetts. And so we're like, how are we going to work this? What are we going to do? Then the pandemic came and took care of it for us. <laughs> There's a silver lining. So, um, but they were both going to graduate. So they both got robbed of their graduation. And it was really sad. I felt terrible for them. And we were going to do it in the backyard for them. But they decided that was depressing. So, <laughs> that is kind of sad. Yeah. For sure, that I know. Kind of sad. So, what do you going to do? Then, Lydia, you have two, like, younger children? Yes. yes I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, and... So they're, you know, the, the four-year-old especially is still at a pretty hands-on age, but, um, but they are, you know, for the most part, kind of unaware. Um, they, I don't know what it is about them or if it's just that we changed, you know, the change of scenery, but they, they're not that interested in Zooming or FaceTiming and just kind of seem psyched to all of a sudden get a lot of time with me and each other. I'm sure that'll wear off eventually, but for now they seem they seem okay with the new, with the new normal. And I don't think they'll remember LA, do you? I think Margo will remember LA, my seven-year-old. Um, they did, we, we went to get ice cream the other day, you know, and they're wearing their masks and one of them tried to eat the cone. <laughs> I've gone, I feel like that was like her, her most shocking COVID moment so far. So, you know, I think <laughs> in general, they're doing all right. She's like, I can't. But my daughter used to work at the local ice cream store. And so it was but like. Benny's in South Carolina. That's where we go. Oh, is that where you went? So it's like oh, big doings if Lydia came in with the kids and Coco was working that day, you know. Very so. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's awesome. Um, well, Allison, I think you had a couple questions about like working in this pandemic as a writer, as an artist. How's that? Are is that happening? I see behind you, Julia, a bunch of post-it notes we can talk about. Yes, my crazy system. Yeah. yeah. I think I ran into was it your mother who was telling me about the post-it notes that you had around the ups? Because when I asked you if this was the room, yes, it was the room. My, my, so at a certain point in drafting uh, Lights All Night Long, I had hit a, a wall with the plot uh, and I decided to break apart um, two other novels whose, you know, plots I admire, uh, Arkansas by John Brandon and Father and Son by Larry Brown. And I, you know, must have used like a million post-it notes breaking mm -hmm. apart the plot and, you know, kind of showing all the different strands. And I put them all over this little attic room where we were staying. And then I remember my mother-in-law walking up the stairs, um, you know, just to like check on us and see how we were doing. And she looked around and it was like this moment, like when the detective recognizes the serial killer because the layers mm -hmm. are scary. He had the strings uh, and push pins going from different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were just, it was everywhere, you know, and then like discarded notes all over the floor. And I'm sure I hadn't showered in a week. And she got this look in her eye, like who is living in my attic? <laughs> Um, Who fell in my son Mary? It's in my own book, so I'm actually very envious and very curious. So this is your system, Julia. I have not seen behind the veil. No, well, well, I'll take it over here because I'll. Um, I, 
And for our listeners, yes, it, like you have some pink post-it notes, some yellow post-it notes, some oh, Yeah, because there's a color system. Like with Frank, I had a really, that first novel, I had a very intense, all the uh, characters had a different color, but I didn't do, didn't do that this time. There were more characters this time, but um, so this one, can you see this? Yeah. These are, the blue ones are around the top or, and down here, these are things I didn't use. Then when I finished writing a chapter, I'd like boil down a chapter to one post-it note. And I have another friend who's a novelist and she's like, push pens. Push pens are the answer because the post-it notes blow away. So I have this very large piece of cardboard. And it, it's when I got my, my first book, they sent me that. You see that? Yeah. And it's like a kid when you give them a Christmas present and they're more excited about the box. I was like, oh my God, look at this big piece of cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> so the cardboard from that one. So that I did it so that every one I could keep track of what happened in each chapter because it's a lot of balls to keep in the air. Lydia will back me up on this. Yeah. So that's yep. all this. And then this is the weeks. So I could make sure that things happen in the week. Uh, some of the things are not here anymore. I used to have a chart of the, the uh, phases of the moon and the month that it happens in 1938 because things happen outside. And I was like, Okay, would they be able to see this? So it's very important for that, to have all that. And then this is, oh, these blue ones, I would do chapters, like this is prologue to chapter three. Like the, the my husband calls these sequences. It's like, this is this chunk of action. So I could keep track of that. Okay. And these are the first and last lines of every chapter because I like it when you have a, a chapter ending where you're like, uh, I really wanted to go to bed now, but you know what? I'm going to stay up and just, re I got to know what's going to happen next. So, and so both have to be compelling, if you, in my opinion. Then what are these? The pink ones are, oh, just like one sentence, like breakdowns of what happens in each chapter. So I could keep track of it because I'm like, well, wait, when did that happen? Oh, that's in chapter five. And it gives me a false sense of control. Yeah. <laughs> And then you can see all these colored ones here are ones I've never used. But I held on to them because you never know. Yeah. So, and you know what? I'm a hoarder from way back, and it's a good thing because I've hoarded all my son's favorite shirts from when he was seven. And now they're getting a second life as masks. So, oh, there you go. <laughs> so there's that. But you never know when you're going to use something again, right, Lydia? It just, like, wait well, Did you use that system for both novels, Julia? Is that Be Frank With Me, or is that... This is the second one. Okay. With Frank, everybody had a different color, and it was on a, right. an actual door, and no, no, no push pins. That was a trauma. You got to stand across the, wall, the room and look at it, because the characters had different colors, and there were only really four characters, four main characters. And I'd look at it and go, okay, well, this chapter is light on Xander, like in this section, so he needs to come in more. So it helped me, in a visual way, keep track of things. So, but let me give you a word of advice. If you intend to write a second novel, don't write a first novel about somebody who's having a hard time writing a second novel. <laughs> yeah, your main character. Just a little word to the wise there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know. So Mimi, she was this famous author when she was super young, and then she did eventually finish that second book, but then we won't tell you what happened to it, but... Uh, uh -huh. You haven't read the book, but yeah, that's that's. I never thought about that. Oh, the, the I never thought about it either till it happened to me, and then I was like, "Wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> what did I do to myself?" So if you're Lydia, if you're not do have doing the same kind of outlining, 
I'm curious what what your process was. I actually was introduced to your writing through sh your shorter stories. So I was wondering what it was like to then work on, on something much longer. Yeah, I think, you know, the essence of it is that for a short story, uh, an an inspiration can sustain the entire course of, of, of writing the piece. So, for instance, for safety, a short story of mine, I um, had a dream that, I, you know, I woke up from the dream, started writing, the voice kind of came to me um, as I was first writing this sort of like liminal early morning state. And then with the voice and, and the, the, this idea from the dream, I was able to write the story over the course of five days. And it felt important to me for that story and for most of my short stories, never to, to let too much time lag um, between starting the story and finishing the story, because I feel like you get out of the headspace, you break the voice, um, the piece just starts to kind of uh, evolve and morph in, in ways that, that um, aren't always uh, serving its purpose. So with a novel, um, it's obviously a really different experience unless you are one of those rare and amazing people who can write a novel like Julia very quickly. Um, yeah, number two, I'm still jealous <laughs> of how you did that. Um, but but I, my first novel took me seven years to write. So you have an initial inspiration and then you have to figure out ways to sustain it and um, ways to keep it fresh and to stay interested as you continue to chip away at this idea. And, you know, for me, the hardest part of writing a novel is, is, is getting in the chair and staying in the chair when you're not having an inspired day and when whatever that initial inspiration is feels very far away or, you know, idiotic. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of the main difference. Um, and then, yeah, I am not an outliner. Um, or a plotter by nature. It's something I am trying to become better at. And I'll tell you a little bit about uh, the, the second novel and the process for that. But for the first novel, I didn't plot at all. I um, had an inspiration. Uh, I hit upon this character, Ilya, uh, who is a Russian exchange student living in a small town in Louisiana. His brother has been in prison for a series of crimes. Um, the inspiration was actually his relationship with his brother. Um, when I hit on that in, in brainstorming, uh, I kind of knew that that was where the energy of the novel was. Um, and I, I wrote blind. So I would sort of know where in a vague way I wanted a chapter to end. And I knew that the novel as a whole was a mystery, but I didn't know how it would be solved. And honestly, I didn't think I should know how it would be solved because I think that can make the ending, especially for a mystery, feel a little bit preordained or um, me you know, boring. Um, so I, I did write blind and instead of um, getting to a satisfying ending, I got to an ending that didn't really make a ton of sense. Um, and I felt really betrayed because I think writing, there, there's a tendency in the writing world to sort of mysticize the writing process, talk about, you know, the muse singing to you or leading you or your character showing you the way. And I knew I had hit upon these dynamic characters and I knew that their relationship was strong. And I felt like, what the hell? Why didn't they lead me to a good ending? Um, so there followed a really, really dark six months when I was in my mother-in-law's attic, pulling apart other books to see if I could figure out how they worked. And in doing that, I realized that I had to pull apart the two very different strands of my novel. So half the novel takes place in America and half of the novel takes place in Russia. And in looking at those two strands separately, like in actually physically separating each chapter 
and looking at them like two novellas. Um, I was able to see, you know, where each one was meeting or not meeting the needs of craft. You know, did each one have tension? Did each one have character arc? Did each one have resolution? And there were a lot of failings in both, you know, both both of these novellas. Um, and then once I'd figured out, you know, what did I what I needed to do to make each one work independently, I started cobbling them back together. Um, and you know that that was another several year process. So all told, it took me about seven years to write the book. Oh, yeah. uh, but the second book is I sold based on a screenplay that I that I've written. So I'm hoping that I, I do have an outline in place for that one mm -hmm. um, and that it will go a lot more quickly. So far, that's been the case. I'm about two thirds of the way through. So knock on wood, I won't somehow spend seven years on the last third. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah, with lights all night long. I'm curious with what you said there. What I had read that in an, an interview that you had had trouble with your initial ending, and you were kind of angry at the muse um, yes. and <laughs> disappointed. Yeah. In but it's like because if they're two separate novellas, but they do a really great job. If you haven't read the book out there, we'll try not to give too much away. But uh, it, it alternates pretty much one to one. I think almost throughout mm -hmm. the book, where you're in Russia. You're in Louisiana, then you're back in Russia, but else, obviously the, the characters overlap, or at least Ilya does. How did you kind of work that out where if you had the same two novellas, but Ilya's in both of them? Was so, that you know, call, calling them novellas, I think, um, is, is probably a misnomer. I feel like I had to look at them that way when I realized that the plot wasn't working. But the, the moving back and forth in time between uh, Ilya's past in Russia and his present in Louisiana, was how the book kind of emerged organically. And it made a lot of sense to me to have his past building to this moment, and this is not spoiling the plot, his past is building to this moment when he leaves. And the beginning of the book is the moment when he arrives and um, is moving forward in time from there. And to me, the, a lot of the book is about Ilya's struggle to move, um, to move forward from a past that is kind of continually trying to pull him backwards. Um, and especially his brother Vladimir and the crimes that he may or may not have committed. And it's very hard for Ilya to accept this, this opportunity, this adventure in America until he is sure that Vladimir will be okay. Um, and that of course is no easy feat. Yeah, it's interesting you say you, you wrote it initially. I mean, you just wrote it, you're not knowing but you were plotting so much is what you said. You're not a plotter, but the book is amazingly well plotted. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a mystery. I know Allison's our, our story for it, mystery and true crime expert. Um, and she's a big Agatha Christie fan. Maybe I don't know if you have a couple questions about that stuff, Allison, and how the book unfolded for you as a mystery reader and enthusiast. Well, yeah, maybe I'll, uh, my question for both of you, I, I, I think I'm always curious about inspirations that maybe you keep going back to, or if there are certain books um, or writers that you return to the most for mm -hmm. inspiration in your work. One of the, one of the big inspirations for the novel, and um, it is a mystery, but it's also really the story of these two brothers. So, so, so a book I returned to time and time again was Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann. And it's like one of the most beautiful portraits of brothers that I've ever read. And um, that was one I read over and over and just, you know, and I'm, in continual awe of. Um, and then, you know, I think for, for mysteries, I like a lot of uh, 
sort of literary thrillers. Um, I'm a big fan, fan of ton of French, um, you know, suspense with a soul. I like to feel like I know these characters really well. I understand their motivations. Um, and I, you know, I also really like uh, classic detective stories. You know, I love I love Agatha Christie. Um, I grew up listening to the, the Sue Grafton series, like A is for, I think, Alibi. And my mom and I would listen to a lot of, of Mysteries in the Car together. Um, my school was kind of far away when I was a kid. So that was something that we did together. And when I set out to write my first book, I think there was a lot of comfort in knowing that I could rely on those classic movements um, that, a, that a mystery has, you know, that there is going to be a crime, there is going to be a solution, there is usually a detective character, um, it's usually not the first suspect, it's the second or the third, you know, and I think um, just having in the back of my mind the idea that I could sort of lean on those things made it a lot easier, um, especially because I'm not a plotter, uh, to, to sort of move forward. So, you know, I did start out with a sense that there would be these murders in uh, Ilya's hometown and that Vladimir would be a suspect. And from there, I knew I had to make, you know, a larger pool of suspects also. Um, and uh, I knew that I had to have, you know, each murder happen and that they should sort of be, you know, first act, second act, third act. So there were definitely classic, you know, elements of mystery that I that I leaned on and, and really appreciated um, in that sort of kind of lost morass of, of writing a first book. Uh-oh, is it my turn now? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because I was thinking about Lydia tearing apart those two books and when um, I was young, I, if you can imagine such a time, I studied with a writer named Richard Yates who wrote Revolutionary Road and all those kind of things. And there's wow. a guy out here who is a show, the, the guy who created Mad Men, and he would give people, um, was it Revolutionary Road? Is that the one they made the movie with, with uh, yep. Leo DiCaprio? Yep. Anyway. Yep. He would get, so this guy was thrilled to have met me because it was like his favorite book. And I was like, oh, I haven't, um, I haven't read any of those books in a long time. And when I looked it up to get to get it to read it, there was a biography of Mr. Yates, too. So I read it. And the takeaway from that was when he was a kid, when he was like 14, he decided, I'm going to be a writer. So he typed The Great Gatsby. Oh, wow. So it would go through his brain. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's such a good idea. So I didn't do that. But I took a... My three favorite books, one at that time. One is uh, I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, who is the 101 Dalmatians person. Don't you love that book? It's like the best book ever. It is. Love that book. And I did that one, and I did uh, uh, Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. And then I did, uh, oh, this you'll love this one. Because my neighbor across the street at that time was a teacher. She's like, I need you to read this book so we can talk about it. And it was The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games is the first one. It's fantastic. I mean, it's not for the ages, but it's really well written. It's very tight. It has the the, the thing where you're like, I got to go to sleep, but this next chapter is 10 pages long. So I'll read that one, and then you read the whole book. So I took a lot from that. So um, that was sort of like what I – and, you know, if you've read my book, you can see how very, like <laughs> – the Hunger Games it is, but you know, like it was like, it was what I needed for like pacing. So then for this book, I was like, um, the second one I read, I read again, which one of my favorite books is True Grit. You guys have read that, right? The best book ever read, such a triumph of voice, unbelievable. And I also read Remains of the Day uh, for the millionth time, which he wrote in a month. So I thought maybe if I read it, I'll write it in a month as well. <laughs> but, um, and then, uh, about halfway through this book, number two, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm writing 
True Grit meets Remains of the Dead. Because <laughs> it's set on a dude ranch. Yes. Yeah. Um, Reno and the guy who's the narrator, and it's got a little bit of gentlemen prefer blondes thrown in. Because the guy who is the narrator is somebody who works on the dude ranch. Because my father actually did this in the 1930s. He was very handsome and charming and a good dancer. And he got a job as a cowboy on a dude ranch where they just squired rich ladies around and danced with them and talked to them and everything. So, and I was like, and he's the chorus girl, you know, like, Mm -hmm. because it's so hard for him as a guy, this narrator to be looked at as just like, Hey, hey, cutie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> come over here. Don't talk to me. Just let me look at you, you know. And so that was sort of the thing. But it was re- once I realized I was writing True Grit Meets Remains of so the Day, I started cackling because I was like, I would totally read that book. <laughs> so, but that's sort of, I don't know if that answered your question, Allison, but there it is. Love it. I have free associated once again. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's out, it's coming out in January of next year, mm-hmm. And I was irate that they held on to it for so long because, um, you know, you when you write it, you want it to come out. And now I'm just so glad because, but my editor went to a different imprint and she wanted to be on her first slate of books at the new imprint. So once they told me this, whether it was really the reason or not, I was like, okay, huh. I believe that, sure. And now, thank God, you know. Yeah, we were talking about the difficulties of friends of yours who are writers, and a friend of mine too, Mary Lowry, had a book come out. It dropped basically right when the curtain dropped, you know, on the rest of it, or opened, or whatever you want to call it. We all went inside, but uh, it's just, yeah, what, what do you think it would be like if your book came out, like, next week? How would that work? On, oh, like, just, well, yeah, how's that you know, work? Mary's been so good about doing social media, like she's amazing at that. She's done a million like book, book bookstagrammers, and she makes t- the the TikToks. You know? so, all this stuff. I was like, I am not making a TikTok. That's just not gonna happen. I haven't even seen TikTok. I need to get with a program. I feel yeah, like come on. join the twenty first century, babe. Can you you dance with a book? She put on some neon, uh, like glow in the dark stuff, and turned the lights off and danced. And I was like, oh, that's, that's yeah. But she and she also has glasses. Like the cover. the cover of her book. Right. She wears yeah. them during all her interviews. So she's really plugged into the visual right. yeah. part. You know, I know that all I would think about the whole time would be like, oh God, what does my hair look like? <laughs> That's pretty much like I would, you know, I would be like a neurosurgeon or something if I hadn't worried about my hair so much growing up. So <laughs> Lydia knows she's seen it when it's frizzy. It's not pretty. <laughs> it's always pretty. <laughs> And speaking of your hair, I saw something on social media that you posted that when you finished your book, you got your hair cut, but you hadn't had it cut. No, I hadn't cut it. So I started writing the second one. I was like, here's my, what I'm going to do. I'm not going to cut my hair until I'm finished with this book because I thought it would be really fast. And my hair was like ear length. It was a perky bob. Huh. And then um, when I finished it, and I had cheated a couple of times, like I took the end of my braid and like cut the end off so then the ends were like this because <laughs> it was all ragged it was it's i could uh, coco cut it like last week so it's not quite i could almost sit on it so i had my husband take a picture of me with my hair over the the stair railings because it's unbelievable how long it is it's it takes the braid, is it like out of sight somewhere 
Yeah, no, it's, have you not seen that? It's on Instagram. There's a picture of my hair just like going down. Oh, it's like, no, I have like, it. I want it. You look it up. It's, I posted it because it's so out of control long, but it's, it's a narcotic now because like I can play with it while I'm working. <laughs> I can hang myself with it. I mean, anything is possible. And I don't ever have to do anything but wash it and put it in a braid. And then I don't have, but then when I have to take it out of the braid, isn't this fascinating? <laughs> I mean, I have to wash it, then I have to comb it. That's really, you know, no day at the beach, so. Well, you, you did give that same kind of, I guess, partially that, that kind of hair to your main your narrator in, your, in the Frank novel, right? So. That's uh, right. I was like, uh, that's another thing where you realize all your obsessions, like they sort of pop yeah. up in weird so ways. Like, an outlet for them. Yeah, because in the, in the second book, for example, there's a, there are mentions of things like uh, uh, coyotes. Like they're mentioned in both books somehow. And like they're various and sundry little things where you're just like, well, I guess I can't write a book unless so-and-so is mentioned in it. I should make a list because it really is really funny, but I would have to read both books again, which is really not high on my list. Yeah. <laughs> but I will have to, so. That is interesting. Yeah, I, the writer, you know, Jennifer Egan, of course. Um, mm -hmm. it's, when she was here, I think, well, or maybe it was just a different interview. She um, said something along those same lines that I read also, I guess, in your interview um, from the LA book review, whatever, the one that just came out on Saturday. But uh, yeah, yeah, the LA review books. Yeah, she's had a lot of obsessions and thoughts about doing, you know, deep dives on lots of different subjects. But instead, like in Visit from the Goon Squad, she gave um, like a character that trait. And they, had the, they went on the deep dive, so they kind of did the work for her. And then so she's done it with a number of her books. She said, you said if you, if you could choose a different career, that wasn't a writer, you would be a doctor or gone to med school. But you, mm -hmm. in your novel, your new novel, the protagonist is a doctor. Yes, because right? my mother was a doctor. And so I had like a lot of experience. I, like, I, it was like I wasn't a doctor, but I played on one on TV kind of thing. I was the child of a doctor, you know. And she would take me to, I was the youngest, and my brother and sister were both, bigger than me, but older, you know, like that, a, a toxic cocktail of let's kill the little one. And so she, she, she would take, cause they're tall too. She would take me to the emergency room with her when she had to go and cause she had to go all the time. So she'd put me in the corner with a box of crayons and a coloring book and then like be sewing people up and all this kind of stuff. And I'd be in the corner just like this. But then also like she left, she'd leave three times every night because she had to either sew somebody up or deliver a baby. And I can remember being little and I'd say, where were you, mama? And she'd say, well, I had a baby. And I'd be like, well, where is it? You know, like I couldn't. And so now she's really old and she's in a home. So nobody can go visit her. And I think about all the thousands of babies she delivered. And then there she sits, you know, so that's super heartbreaking to me. We won't yeah. talk about it, but anyway, but that sort of, um, where that part came from because I know a lot about doctors and I know a lot about what it's like to have a father who's very handsome and super vain about it. <laughs> so I had that, yeah. he'd been the cowboy, you know, so write what you know, right, Lydia? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was striking that both of you, like there's a, a link to your parents and what they're doing in your work because your, your mother was a mm historian, -hmm. correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that, um, so my mom, my mom lived and studied in Russia, as did my dad, although he was, he was along for the ride. He was not a Russian historian um, in the 70s. So they were there during the Cold War. 
And um, when I was young, my mom was working on a book about Russia. So I remember, you know, waking up and she'd be like asleep at the typewriter the next morning, like clearly having stayed up all night trying to finish the book. And I think, you know, both with writing and with Russia, um, I sort of subsumed these passions of hers. And I was really interested in the place, you know, I wanted to know what it was about Russia, which, you know, I'd kind of only heard talked about in sort of very like Cold War terms um, that my mom so loved. Uh, so um, I was interested in Russia. And then when I was eight, my um, my mom uh, through, I think a friend, we ended up hosting two little girls, two little Russian girls who came and stayed with us. Um, and so they're the most literal inspiration for Ilya. Uh, who is an exchange student and his character. Um, and they were quite remarkable. So it was a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. Um, and the six-year-old was a brilliant pianist. Um, like her stay with us culminated in this duet that she performed with Rostropovich at the Kennedy Center. Um, she was just completely brilliant. And I was in awe of her, but also kind of terrified at this idea that, you know, she was six years old and had left home, left her parents behind um, to come and stay with us. And I remember her being quite homesick. You know, I remember her asking for her mom and feeling terrible that I had only mine to offer. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that idea that you, in order to pursue adventure or opportunity, you have to leave home and leave your family, um, that there's, there's a sacrifice on that end, um, that kind of informed Ilya's character and, and is sort of like the most literal inspiration for his arc over the course of the novel and, and that kind of push and pull of him wanting to, um, to accept this opportunity in America, but, but feeling always like he owes something to home and to Vladimir. Could the little girl speak English? Uh, no, my mom speaks Russian fluently, um, and so that's, you know, part of why we were, we were part of the program, um, so they didn't. So we communicated sort of like uh, in, in the novel, the Masons or the exchange family, and on the, um, they pick Ilya up at the airport, and uh, there are three girls, and the two youngest girls are sort of peppering uh, Ilya with mm -hmm. questions about Russia, um, like what, what sound do animals make in Russia and all of these kind of inane questions, which were the exact questions that I asked. Oh yeah. Oh, that's really funny. You know, that's such a good scene. Yeah. Um, and I remember roosters go kukuriku in Russian. And I thought that was like the most amazing thing that I had ever heard. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, that, that experience, um, it just stuck with me. And then I think when, when you're writing, um, and especially when you're writing like I do without an outline, mm -hmm. I was basically brainstorming in long form. And when I hit upon Ilya, this, this, this character, um, it felt like there was something, um, that, it, like it had roots, like there was something in my subconscious <laughs> tapping into. And it wasn't until I explored his story and his, his relationship with Vladimir that I, that I remembered um, you know, this experience with these girls and, and realized that I had tapped into this vein of experience and that that's why I was so drawn to his, his story. Because wasn't it going to be about somebody else in the beginning? Yeah, so Sadie, who is the eldest of the, the three sisters, um, Ilya's host sister, uh, was initially the main character. And I wrote a short story in which she's the protagonist and um, kind of felt like I had unfinished business with her and her world. And so I started brainstorming in long form a Sadie novel. And I wrote six different hundred page openings to various Sadie novels. And um, they all kept running out of steam at around the hundred page mm -hmm. mark. And it wasn't until I wrote a scene in which she met Ilya um, on the first day of, I think it was sophomore year civics class. Um, and until his character got on the page that just felt like there was this, this energy there all of a sudden. Um, and that I had found 
uh, you know, a character that I wanted to really write about, but it seems, it seems kind of terrifying too. You know, I'd spent years writing mm -hmm. these city beginnings. So it felt like a big risk to jump to Ilya. Um, so I made myself a deal and I gave myself a week to explore him and his backstory and to mm -hmm. specifically kind of answer the questions of, of, of why had he left Russia? Why had he come to America? Who had he loved and left behind? And in trying to answer those questions, I hit upon his relationship with Vladimir. And that's where the novel in its current form took off. And, um, you know, he obviously pretty quickly eclipsed Sadie's, Sadie's perspective um, and became the Yeah, because that happens. Because, you know, with the second one, like the first book I wrote, it was going to be about the mother. And it was going to be called Einstein's mom. Because all I could think about was like, if you were Einstein's mother, how weird would that be? <laughs> my mother, not that I was that smart, but every time she saw me, the first thing she'd say to me was, why don't you go comb your hair? How are you, sweetheart? You know, like that, it was not even hello. Like, yeah. and, so, and I thought like, Einstein's mom did the same thing. You know, she did. Totally. But then the Frank character came and took it over, you know? So, you know, she, then she was cranky. So I so like, I don't like to spend time with cranky people. So that's why she's locked away a lot of time. The thing that I worry you miss out on if you outline, right? But so, see, I don't outline. I just outline after. After. Okay, right. So like the post-it notes probably is. a record of your progress. Yeah, because I get lost. Don't you yeah. get lost? I can't remember where things are. So, like, these little post-it notey things are things I think, well, that might be something I would use at some point, And I just keep them up here. And then I would yeah. sort of. Like they, it's like when you're looking for a clean pair of socks. You yeah, know, this one, this one doesn't match it, but they're clean. So. <laughs> but then with the second book, I wrote half of it, and and I was in third person, and I was like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stretch and grow, you know. And so I turned it in, and my um, editor said, I don't know. I mean, you know, geez, you're all like voice and throwaway jokes. It's just. <laughs> It's not good, <laughs> which is what every, it's like music to your ears. So I was like, okay, but I didn't give up. And I wrote a sec, I wrote half of a second one and I turned it in and she's like, I love the first six pages. I hate the rest of it, <laughs> but I didn't give up. And the nice thing was she bought it based on those six pages. Wow. She didn't pay a lot for it because it was a pig and a poke, you know, it might've never come to anything. And I don't even remember what happened after those six pages, like what was different. You know, if you held a gun to my head, I could not tell you. Yeah. Because I, mean, I had to just let it go. And then, um, then it worked out in the end. Thanks to Lydia, because Lydia would walk with me and I'd be like, oh my God, Lydia. <laughs> she lived through all of this. So it was hard. Do you remember no. how depressed I would get? Oh, I was so I, sad. I, I feel like when I met you, you had just, you had just started redrafting the novel in first person. Uh-huh. So my impression was a very like full steam ahead. I know what I need to do. It's so that must've been the third version then. I think, yeah, I think I met, because you already had a braid, so I can judge it now I know by the way. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like time-lapse photography. It would've yeah. been so fun if I'd taken a picture every day. I you never know? saw you with the bob. Yeah, so, and see, you know, now, now I'll have to cut it off again just so people can track my despair for exactly. the next one. <laughs> yeah, this could be like a new, a new Instagram phenomenon. I know, exactly. So Lydia, maybe back to you real quick about the Russia stuff. Did yeah. you? You went over there on some research trips. Were you ever in like this much snow? Right? You described snow and cold really well. I, I mean, lots of other things were described really well, but this, the feel of like northern Russia was like. Yes. Yeah, so I so I went to Russia um, in the mid '90s and was in Moscow, um, but that was in the summer. So, so that was not a snowy time, but then I went again on a research trip in grad school in the winter. Um, I actually 
got to go with my mom. I took Russian in high school, but my Russian's abysmal. So she came with me as my translator. And mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, every bit as snowy as as the world described in those pages. Didn't you live there for a while when you were a kid too in Russia or did I make that up? No, we went in, in um, the mid nineties and I had an uncle, actually I had two uncles who lived there and we stayed with one of my uncles for a summer in 1996. Um, and mm. that was a very chaotic time in Russian history. And I knew I was in middle school at the time. So I knew in sort of, you know, a middle school civics way that Russia was a place in transition, but, um, but it was pretty shocking. Like I remember waking up one morning and there was a dead body in the courtyard of our apartment building. Like this, this guy in a suit and had been shot in the night. Um, <gasps> measure the radiation, you know, and be cooked. And, um, that summer there were a bunch of uh, subway bombings that were being blamed on Chechen separatists. And um, I remember, you know, just bodyguards with like semi-automatic weapons everywhere. Um, so it was a really chaotic time, but, um, and, and, and a heartbreaking time. I mean, the, there was an enormous amount of economic devastation, but there was also this real force of hope, this sense that Russia was a place on the verge and that it could become something different. Um, and, kind of like this this moment that I that I often think of when I when I describe that time is um, my uncle uh, had a driver slash bodyguard um, and he had been a driver for his entire life. He was in his 60s. And um, after the economic shocks of perestroika, his entire life savings amounted to one pack of cigarettes. And I always remember him telling me this just chain smoking away and I would, I, oh I was God. that the pack, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, there was, there was an enormous amount of heartbreak, um, but also this, yeah, this, this hope that, um, that opportunity might come out of this time. And I think that combination seemed um, ripe to me to explore in fiction. And in a way, you know, Vladimir and Ilya's story is kind of an allegory for the fortune and misfortune that came out of that era of Russian history. Mm -hmm. I'm always curious to know, like, at what point you realized writing was a thing, a career that you wanted. Like, how early on for both of you did you did you kind of think about pursuing writing? You start. I have sort of an annoying answer to that. When I was writing as a as a kid, like, I I always wrote novels. Um, Julia's heard about this, but I would write these really what must have been terribly boring novels about a rabbit family that did exactly what my family did and. Um, I would print them on the printer paper with those little holes. Oh, with the holes, yes. Peel those off and hand the stack to my mom and dad. And very sweetly, they would read the entire, you know, whatever, however many hundreds of pages and tell me they would like to read the sequel. And so I would like dutifully go write the sequel. Um, I just always did it. I remember like writing really tortured diary entries. It was just something I, I have always done. And, you know, I was lucky. I have, um, my grandfather was a writer, so I had this sense that it was something that could be a profession, that it it didn't have to just be a hobby. Um, and I also had a, a, a father who was a lawyer, but was very miserable and always wished he'd become a writer. So um, the idea that, you know, it could be a profession and that it was something that, you know, one of my parents had been dying to do, but hadn't actually made the leap. I think that that kind of, you know, drew me towards it more. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. Cause see, I'm so much older than Lydia. I'm 172. But, uh, like, even though my mother was a doctor, I think all she wanted me to do was just grow up and get married and have kids. Because I think it's the life she didn't get to have. Like, it's the life that she said, I'm not doing that. 
And then she was just like, but I want my kids to be accountants. I'm like, yeah, yeah. oh my gosh, well, yeah. you got this there. Yeah. There will always be taxes. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but my mother had one of those typewriters that you learn to type on that doesn't have the, the letters on it. So I taught myself how to type on that. It's a, it's a typing class. I don't know why she had it. Well, that's so cool and kind of spooky. It's yeah, so, no, so, so I typed, learned how to type on that. And then, um, and I was in college and I had a teacher and, you know, I can't remember her name and it just kills me because she was a wonderful teacher and a delight. And she's like, I think you should take graduate writing classes. So, and I was a complete knucklehead as an undergraduate, like just the dumbest person you've ever met. But I had a facility with words, but, you know, and so she got me into the, I had Peter Taylor. Do you, you guys ever heard of him? He was a, like a writer of yesteryear. He ran around with uh, Robert Penn Warren and all those guys. It was that set of people. And so uh, I was in his class and I was in another, oh God, I can't think of another guy's name. I can't believe, I can't think of his name. So I took a couple of graduate writing classes. I know the grad students would just look at me like, who is this idiot that we have in here? This giggly idiot. Sorry, left out giggly. But then like, it sort of like was a thing. So I was like, well, I don't know what to do. My mother wants me to go to medical school. That's not going to happen. Chemistry did me in. And I just applied and I got into one. So I was like, oh, all right, I'll go. And then uh, that's where I had uh, 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 Richard Yates. So it was just like, I sort of fell into it. And then I worked in magazines because I could write sentences. But it was such a valuable thing because I worked with a fiction editor at Mademoiselle Magazine and I had to read 10,000 manuscripts a year. So we could get 12 to publish the slush pile, you know, and it was hard to find 12 that you could publish. And so I learned a lot from that. I learned that like being able to write good sentences is a dime a dozen kind of, uh, having a good story sense is much more useful. Like people could give me a story assignment and I could do a great job, but I couldn't like generate it myself. So I understood I had a lacking thing that was undoubtedly based on the fact that I was a giggly idiot at that point in my life. <laughs> but, um, and then there were like people who just can't write, like can't for the life of them. And it really, I think that's why I didn't even try to write a book till I was 50. And I was walking down uh, my street, you know, where the stop sign is? <laughs> the street. I was halfway down the block and I was thinking about, I reread uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Maybe you guys have heard of it. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, you know, Boo Radley must be on the autism spectrum. And then my very next thought, because I had kids, was, well, you know what? It's a lot easier to write that character than it is to raise him. And I thought, oh, that would be kind of a good book. And I don't think that book exists. So I think I'll write that book. So by the time I got to that stop sign that you know, Lydia. Wow. I was so like, you know, like five yards of walking. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, you know, half a block. And I knew the last line by the time I got to the stop sign, which ended up not being the last line, but was for five years of the book. Wow. So, but... Um, you know, so I just put the last, the, the last line first. I'll tell you what it is. It's not, it's not the last line anymore. Cause my editor was like, you know, when she, when she read it, she was, she had made me change the end and I changed it. She's like, Oh my God, it's brilliant. You did just such a good job. Uh, can you write another chapter? <laughs> I was like, what? That's been the last line for five years. You don't understand. It's the last line. And she said, well, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to, you can just think about it. And then I took a nap, which was a very key part of my work day. I don't know if it is for you, Lydia, because your well, brain 
taking a nap. So it's all sort of between naps, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, So it it reorganizes your thoughts. You see a liminal up there. Yeah. Yeah. So I took a nap and when I woke up, I was like, oh, wait, I know I can do it. And it had a different last line, which is really should have been the last line the whole time. But the first last line was something about, I can't tell you that ruin in it. But it was something that was I was thinking about constantly. So kids go out buy the book so that I can pay for my colleges, the college debts. And uh, when you read the next to the last chapter, last line. I'm going to go downstairs because my mother-in-law is obsessed with Julia and has like at least a dozen copies of your book lying around. (laughs) I love that. There are more be frank with me than lights all night long here in this house. Oh my gosh. Yeah, one of our story story for team, Joe Davidson, who we were trying to get involved in this today too. He's a big fan of the uh, a Frank. He just fell in love with Frank. Oh, uh, really? Oh, that's so good to hear. Because you know we're living in a vacuum here. <laughs> I know. My children have developed a, a better appreciation of me during this period. I would like to say, but you know, yeah, we have a lot of outside cool. stimulation. Yeah, I think it is pretty interesting. Like when on your your novel wall behind you there, here on Zoom, you're pointing to one of those rows was like the first line of the chapter of a chapter and the last line of a chapter. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna start trying that. I've never done that before. And also the way you described, like as an editor, you had so many manuscripts to go through. You would read like the first page, the yeah. middle page, middle page. And the last, and then I could tell if I needed to read it. There was a separate stack for those that needed to all be read, and then the others were like, "Oh, God bless you! <laughs> you did it. You finished it. Good job." So, but you know, it's just hard. It's kind of similar. I don't know ways of thinking about you know writing and, and editing too. But the, the first and last, and then you're just talking about the last line you have there. So that's that is interesting. I rarely go to the last line first, or maybe I've never done that. I don't know. But that's well, my first line in my book, in that first book, I spent like a month writing it. Because you know how, like, I'm so, like, narcissistic, not the word, whatever money-grubbing, I believe, whatever the n- money-grubbing version of narcissistic is. Um, you go in a bookstore, you pick up a book, you read the first page. I was like, okay, I got to write a first sentence where people are going to go, oh, stuff is going to happen, you know? So, you maybe read Chris could, yeah, read it, because I don't have it handy. Uh, because the station wagon blew up in the fire, Frank and I took the bus to the hospital. Something's going to happen. Something's going to blow up. And the hilarious thing is, my husband is a TV writer. He's the funniest man alive. And he used to write for Frasier. He also used to write for Beavis and Butthead. And they blow stuff up a lot in Beavis and Butthead. And I wrote that first line and I said, look, honey, <laughs> I have a little tribute to you here. Something blows up in the first sentence. <laughs> oh, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, we are kind of getting low on our time. We got a little bit though. Um, Allison, do you have like final questions? I mean, we've kind of touched on it, but maybe leaping back to what quarantine life and writing looks like. I mean, have you, are you able to work in this time or what is, how are things looking for you right now? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. I have, um, I always feel really guilty saying this, but, uh, but I actually have done a ton of writing in quarantine. Um, it's it's been really good for me because I think uh, before we decided to move, at least you're you're so much of the logistics that made up life and life with kids have fallen by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that I just find like my, my mind, my mental space is a lot clearer. And, um, I'm lucky in that my husband and I have a very draconian like relationship to parenting. So we do an exact split of like the number of wake hours. Um, and so I take the morning, he takes the afternoon. And then the next day I take the afternoon and he takes the morning and he's a writer also, he's a screenwriter. So, um, it really has has uh, been actually really good for my writing. So I've been doing a thousand words a day on oh the novel that I that I owe Penguin Press, um, and that will be the second novel. And then I'm also working on another book at night. I like have a margarita at seven, and then I start work on this sort of more commercial, really fun project um, that that is a mystery um, and I won't re reveal too much about it, but it's, yeah, it's been kind of, um, kind of an amazing time for, for writing for me. Um, I feel like I'm never really able to work on two projects at once. I just don't have the bandwidth. And so that's, that's been something that's, that's been surprising and awesome. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, see for me, like when I'm working, I will not see anybody. I refuse. I won't leave my house. I won't talk to people because it gets me out of the bubble because it's so hard to juggle everything. So the only thing I would do is go to the gym. I can vouch for that. You had like long spells of hermitishness. Yeah. So I finished my book, people, and yeah. then <laughs> nobody could go out. And Chris was laughing at me the other day because we did a, a bunch of the writers in the hood did a, a thing for, um, I think it was this one, for, for Chevaliers. And he could hear me talking because my voice is very loud. And so um, I was talking about how because I had to finish the final edits for that first month. Like I was still in that writer mode. And then I came out and I couldn't see anybody. And so I was like, then I started baking bread. Oh, and it was funny because you couldn't get yeast. Like, you know, you if you sold, offered your child in trade, you could not get yeast. And so I had a key to Lydia's house that she'd fled. And I was like, maybe Lydia has yeast. And so I went over. What was I thinking, right? But I went over and I just was like pulling through all of her drawers. And I was like, I'm like a looter. But if she has yeast. I did have like pastry flour from 2000, yeah. I don't know, 10. And you were pastry flour. Like after she had whole wheat flour and you couldn't, you, that was like two weeks ago. You couldn't buy whole wheat flour. I was like, oh my God, there's a bag of whole wheat flour. And it expired five years ago. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I started like baking bread. The linen closet is very tidy now. Now I'm cleaning in the garage, you know, like all the stuff that everybody did a while ago. I'm just now coming to it. But I'm just like, damn it. You know, I wanted to see my friends and now I can't. And I just, I told myself I'd start writing another book July 1st. That it's not July, right? Yeah. <laughs> Please tell me it's still April. <laughs> Cause yeah. doesn't it feel like it's still April? I mean, what is going on? So, oh, anyway. so have you started the new book, or are you nope. still not, not quite yet? I've thought about it a lot. I told Coco one of my ideas, which is also like a thought, kind of commercial, and Coco's like, I would totally read that book. And then so then every time, like when we walk, because she helped Lydia pack some of her stuff. Not that Lydia, you know, Lydia directed her, and I'd walk her over to Lydia's house. She go, Hey, mom, have you started that book yet? I was like, No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm busy making face masks out of your brother's second grader shirts. Right now. <laughs> so. Oh, so Lydia, you have this new project. You, you said you owe Penguin, but uh, you're going to get that in. And then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm excited you're writing that one because you sort of threw it away for a while, but now yeah. it's back. It's the one from before. 
the book tour, it, it was really hard to write, um, at least for me to work on a novel while on book tour. Um, I, I wrote some short stories, which, you know, I considered a win to, mm -hmm. to, to do any writing really on book tour because you're, you know, you're just on the road, you're moving around a lot. Um, I like to, to be in one place and, you know, as I've said, have kind of a clear headspace in order to, to work on a project. But yeah, so I'm, I'm working on novel number two for Penguin and then this other something um, in the evenings. Yeah, so do you, I know you have a, a number of short stories out there in the world that are awesome and we've read them in the workshop I teach. Um, or at least we've read oh, Satan. Oh, let me join workshop sometime. I would, yeah, we could zoom you in. Totally, that'd be fun. Okay, I might take you up on that. We'll FaceTime even or something like that. Great. But that said, our, I'm super curious if you're gonna publish a book of short stories. I don't think you have one out there, do you? Or, or no, I don't, no. You know, I, I tend to write short stories when inspiration hits. And I found that, you know, the, the results are not all kind of naturally linked in a way that seems to scream story collection to me. Um, I, that said, I would totally love to, to, to do it one day. And um, yeah, I've got two more that are out right now and fingers crossed we'll find a home. So, you know, I feel like I'm kind of getting to that critical mass where I, where I have enough out there that I'm, that I'm proud of that I'd love, love to put together in a book. Um, it's definitely something I'd want to do. I mean, short, short stories are, they're my first love. So um, yeah, I, I would love to do that. And kind of to go back to an earlier question about uh, inspiration for the novel, I actually would turn to short stories kind of more than anything else for, for inspiration. And um, I got my MFA and I feel like I have this whole, I have this whole binder of short stories that are organized by elements of craft, which is, you know, like a very MFA thing. Oh, interesting. Um, and when I would find myself hitting a wall for, for whatever reason, um, I would look at stories that I felt like had, you know, been, um, outstanding in whatever that, that realm of craft was. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that was one way that I, that I really like would help myself over certain humps in the novel. Like I remember, um, uh, well, this isn't a good example because that's actually a novel. But so for instance, one at one point in lights, writing lights all night long, um, I was felt feeling really frustrated with uh, juggling all of the drama and, and conflict in Ilya's life. Um, you know, he has a brother who's in prison. He's trying to figure out whether his brother committed this series of murders. Um, but at the same time, he's sort of falling in love with his host sister. And it was hard to reckon with um, how he might hold both those things in his mind at once um, and how to write them simultaneously. So I turned to uh, Michael Byers' uh, novel, Long for This World, which is one of my absolute favorites. Um, it's one of the rare books I've read three times. Um, it's just so beautiful, but it's it's um, you know a largely set in a high school. One of the characters in it is a high school student, and I feel like he manages to capture um, you know, both that, those kind of everyday details you need, you know, the crushes, the jockeying, the lunch line and all of that, but also this, these, these, um, much, you know, kind of deeper, more important movements of both plot and character. And so that was something, you know, I, I looked at time and time again, when I would hit that particular problem. Um, but I had this kind of like giant file of short stories and I would do the same thing, you know, depending on what, what sort of wall I'd bumped up against. Right. I can, yeah, I don't, mine is not as organized as yours, it sounds like, but I do have like a lot of um, short story collections and just ones that I've cut and pasted from the New Yorker over the years. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, so like another example is like uh, Alice Monroe and actually Michael Byers taught me this, this, but um, she has a great way of uh, really elegantly getting a character to do something that that character might not by nature do. Um, and it's called the if and but so. And this has like a little copyright Michael Byers symbol by it um, because he's the one who taught it to me. But he, so basically you might say, um, if it hadn't have been raining, Alice never would have gotten her umbrella and then she never would have dropped her umbrella on 6th Street and met so-and-so. So it's like a way of kind of um, getting your character to turn turn a corner or engage in a moment or it, uh, end up in a situation that is against their nature. And that was something where I would, you know, read one of her stories when I knew I had to have Ilya or Vladimir or Sadie do something that felt a little bit like a stretch. And, um, you know, she would inspire me to find an elegant way to make that happen. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm yeah. totally using that next time. I do the if and but so. I'm just dying to write another novel. Can't wait yeah. to, oh, wait, let me just start right now. Make a whole novel in if and but so. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm sure Michael Byers want mine. <laughs> well, we kind of come to the end of our time um, for the podcast, but thanks for being here and hopefully face-to-face -face at Storyport uh, down, um, down the line and I guess, Allison, thanks for, uh, you know, taking time out of your busy schedule on a Sunday. And thank your dog, Karma, that's behind you. She's been diligently Monitoring. <laughs> and so great to have met you guys here. And um, gosh, I really like and admire your work. And you obviously have fun together, too. So you guys could probably stay on for a couple more hours and just, you know. Catch yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll just uh, one day soon see you at the fest. Can't wait. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Tomorrow, but tomorrow never came.